Listener Production. Hey, I'm Matt Dwyer, and welcome to Sleep, where Professor Harriet Hiscock and Associate Professor Emma Berris from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute help you identify sleeping problems in your children from infancy through to secondary school and give you easy-to-understand steps to improve their sleep cycles and overall health. So we've touched on things like sleeping apnea and snoring and restless legs, but I'd like to get into that a little bit more. So what actually is sleep apnea? So sleep apnea is um, affects about 1% to 5% of all children and it occurs in conjunction with snoring usually when they have periods overnight where they stop breathing and that can be anywhere from 5, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds. It tends to occur more in the later part of, you know, preschool, early primary school years where the adenoids and tonsils are big in the um, throat, in the airway, compared to the diameter of the airway that's quite small. And when we go to sleep at night, the muscles in our airway relax and close down a bit. So we get snoring. And then there happen with periods where they stop breathing because they obstruct in their upper airway. And then the oxygen level in the blood drops, which then triggers the brain to uh, take that big gasp in. So typically with obstructive sleep apnea, in kids as well as adults, you get snoring, then a period of silence when they're not breathing, followed by a big gasp. The other thing that children can do is sleep with their neck extended on the pillow to try and open up their airways. So you might go in and find your child, you know, lying in an unusual position. Um, the child can, is usually just not aware this is happening at all. They're doing it maybe several times a night and they're completely oblivious, but they tend to wake up in the morning not refreshed. They might complain of a headache in the morning as well and just just feeling like they haven't had a good night's sleep. Well, is there a difference between just sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea or is it the same thing? Really, it's the same thing. Um, And there's certain children who are more at risk of it. So certainly children who are overweight or obese are more at risk of obstructive sleep apnea. Children with Down syndrome are also more at risk and children um, with certain neurological, you know, conditions are more at risk as well of obstructive sleep apnea. And what if, if it's left untreated, what are the effects? Yeah, it's really important to get onto this one and treat it. So left untreated, there's what we call cardiac effects. So high blood pressure, persistently high blood pressure in the child. The fragmented sleep leads to problems with cognition, so attention and focus the next day, memory consolidation and behavioural problems and, you know, regulation of emotion and um, behavioural issues as well are really common if it's left untreated. What about in adults? It's similar with adults. So um, really putting them at risk of high blood pressure and all the corollaries of that, you know, so increased risk of heart attack and stroke all can lead on from that um, if they've got persistent obstructive sleep apnea. And typically with adults, we see it a lot in if they're overweight or obese, which then adds to all the, the cardiometabolic risk factors for them as well. And so it affects our sleep cycles? Look, it does in terms of interrupting the sleep and, and stopping that, you know, having periods of just not breathing, 
then rousing, gasping, going back to sleep. So you just get very fragmented sleep. So the quality of sleep is very poor and that affects, you know, the behaviour and learning the next day Mm -hmm. in adults as well as in children. And for adults particularly or adolescents who are driving, that's a real risk. Mm. And what about the difference between sleep apnea and just regular snoring? Yeah, so it's a continuum really. So snoring obviously is common, Mm. uh, particularly if children, if your child has only snores when they've got a cold, you don't need to worry about it. That That's typical and that's normal. There is some evidence that just habitual snoring, so snoring more than, you know, four nights a week, every week, is associated with some slight increases in blood pressure and heart rate in children. It's, I think the, there's a bit of debate about how to best manage that because some of the management um, involves medical management and some of it's surgical management and certainly for obstructive sleep apnea, you need to definitely treat that. For primary snoring without obstruction, it's a bit more debatable, but I think we're leaning towards treating that as well. And um, the first line would be a a steroid nasal spray that you use for around six weeks. So when does snoring become a serious issue? Because I had uh, an old housemate that her parents stay and her dad snored so loud. Yep. Shook the house almost. <laughs> it was crazy. Well, I think, you know, that's when you go to your GP and check your blood pressure and the heart rate and, and look at your weight and everything else that's going on. And, um, you know, it's certainly in adults, if you had, um, it's probably getting a bit out of my field with the adult medicine, but if you had snoring like that in association with high blood pressure and, and you know, being overweight or obese, the first step is to try and lose that weight. And then maybe even talking about some of the options like like um, the CPAP mask, which helps to keep positive airflow and pressure to keep your airways open so that you don't snore like that overnight. Mm. Are snoring or sleep apnea genetic? They certainly run in families, definitely. But you can get a child who has obstructive sleep apnea with no history of anyone in the family having that problem. And one of the best ways to really diagnose is, you know, obviously to listen at the bedroom door, but also to take a video of what's happening with your child's sleep and take that along to your doctor and even pulling up their pyjama top so you can see when they stop breathing and, and, you know, capture that on film can be really useful. The gold standard is um, a sleep test in a sleep laboratory called a PSG or polysomnography but that requires going into a, a, usually a hospital for the night where your child sleeps. They're wired up to several sensors, sensors of their brain waves, their oxygen levels, um, their heart rate, etc. And then they have a sleep overnight and then that gets analysed the next morning and you can see how often they're stopping breathing, how often their oxygen levels dip. And that can help sort of differentiate if they're mild or moderate or severe OSA with a severe and the moderate ones tending to go on to surgery. But the children with a milder OSA now, um, we're gearing them more towards the intranasal steroid therapy first to see if that can help. Those are the two options you have? Well, the third option is actually something what we call watchful waiting. So there was a big study conducted in the States um, across a number of sites called the CHAT study, C-H-A-T, and they compared surgery to um, taking out the adenoids and tonsils to watchful waiting. And actually 47% of kids got better just by themselves, just through the natural, and this was seven months down the track, so it's not a huge amount of time. Um, And that was their airways getting bigger, their tonsils and adenoids size shrinking relative to their airways, and they were improving just with no management. 
So it's mm. always an option, particularly for the milder obstructive sleep apneas. So snoring and sleep apnea are the big ones. What yeah. other physical sleeping problems are yeah, there? Yeah, look, certainly we know that children with uncontrolled asthma can have a lot of dry coughing overnight that wakes them. So people always think of wheeze being associated with asthma, which is right. But um, a dry cough, particularly nocturnal cough, is indicative of asthma. So if your child is doing that, take them to the GP. They need to get their 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 asthma, you know, their lung function or their lungs listened to and checked out. Wheezing overnight, uncontrolled asthma will cause that. So that that's another issue. There's something called restless leg syndrome, which um, actually happens at the start of the night when the child we talked about in the ADHD episode can um, have this feeling of, you know, pins and needles or ants crawling up their legs and they need to move their legs in order to relieve that symptom and that feeling. So their legs are moving constantly at the start of the night and that makes it really difficult to fall asleep. It doesn't tend to happen overnight. Restless leg syndrome is associated with low iron levels and so it's worth taking your child off to the GP to get those iron levels checked and treated if they're low because that's been shown in sort of case studies to um, reduce those symptoms. What can also help particularly in older kids is making sure they're not having caffeine or alcohol because that worsens our restless leg syndrome symptoms as well. Can it also happen in adults as well? Definitely. It's probably more common in adults and that's when we actually get into different medication options which we try to avoid in kids. We try to treat it with iron and the other thing which can help is moderate physical activity in the afternoon but not just before bedtime. All of those things help for adults, but there's also some um, Parkinson-like medications that you can use for adults with restless leg syndrome, but we tend not to go there with children because of, you know, side effects. I think the other issues that can also happen overnight, um, particularly in younger kids, and this is why it's always good before you start any behavioural strategies, is to get your child checked out by your GP physically, and that is recurrent ear infections. So whilst sometimes it's really obvious the child gets a fever, they seem like they're in pain, um, some children will get ear infections and just have low-grade sort of symptoms of being a bit grisly, a bit out of sorts, a bit of a fever. And sometimes the first thing you know is the eardrums perforate and you find discharge coming out of their ear. Um, but certainly the ear pain, you know, you lie down at night, the fluid sort of collects and the, the pain can be worse. So that's worth um, getting ruled out as well. So another um, medical condition that's actually really rare is something called narcolepsy. And this is excessive excessive daytime sleepiness. So not just falling asleep on the way home from school or in front of the television, but children actually dropping asleep in the classroom. Or, and it happens to adults as well, just falling asleep on the desk during the middle of the day. That is rare. It can happen more commonly in children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And it's something that requires a sleep specialist to measure and requires a, a test that's conducted in a lab where um, it's called a M, multiple sleep latency test where they're allowed the chance to fall asleep multiple times during the day and it's time to see how quickly they can fall asleep and that um, forms part of the diagnosis. But it's certainly a fairly very rare occurrence in children. Mm. Do you think that physical sleeping problems like these uh, start to occur earlier or 
later in life? It depends on the nature of the problem. So the ear infections are typically in the toddlers and preschoolers. Um, sleep apnea does start, you know, in that preschool age and into primary school is common because the airways are small relative to the bigger tonsils and adenoids, whereas things like narcolepsy are, tend to be more an onset later on out of that primary school age into adolescence and adulthood. So one of the other things parents will come and see me about and they're worried that there might be a medical problem is their child being really restless and tossing and turning. And usually that's, that is normal um, behaviour. Relative to adults, children spend a lot more time in light sleep or REM or rapid eye movement sleep. And that's a time when we can be tossing and turning and then moving our eyes under our eyelids. So... Parents, particularly if they're sleeping next to their child, will often come in and be worried about that. But the tossing and turning is completely normal. In little babies, they may actually move their head back and forth rapidly in, on their pillow or their cot bed, um, and parents try and stop them. But a bit like us rocking in a rocking chair, which is soothing for us, the child, the baby, the toddler moving their head back and forth, that's actually really soothing for them as well. And that's something that you shouldn't stop them doing. Into toddler and um, primary school age kids, they can start headbanging or rocking. And that can be really distressing to the family. But the child's actually usually asleep while they're doing it. And the first thing the parents know is they can hear the bang, bang, bang coming from the child's bedroom. And they'll go in and the child might be up on all fours and banging their head against the cot or their bed. Um the child is not awake, leave them be. If they continually do it and, you know, they're causing harm to themselves, you can try the scheduled awakening technique, which we talked about for night terrors. If they're doing it at, say, 10pm every night, you go in at 20 to 10, try and wake them up a bit, um, just rouse them and try and reset their sleep cycle so they stop that rhythmic um, banging. But by and large, it's harmless and they will grow out of it but that might take weeks to months of growing out of it. What causes them to do the banging? We don't really know. Oh. It's, um, it's certainly worse if they're overtired or they're sick. It's probably quite soothing to them because oh. it's a rhythmic movement and it can come in episodes. It might be there for weeks, then it's gone for a few months, then it comes again. But by and large, it's not harmful and they shouldn't worry about it. So teeth grinding is another pretty common one as well. I know that was happening to me for a little yep. while. Why do you think, what brought that on and is that something we should seek medical advice? Yeah, look, it's certainly something that does happen in children, particularly if there's a family history of it. It puts them at increased risk. So they may be clenching or grinding their teeth or gnashing them during the night. They may be aware of it or certainly, you know, other siblings or parents can hear them doing it. And they'll typically wake up in the morning with a sore jaw or sore teeth. They may have a headache as well when they wake in the morning and they may report really sensitive, um, you know, teeth to sensitive to certain foods or cold or, or hot um, foods. So if it's happening, it's usually something that gets better by itself, but it's definitely worth checking if your child is stressed or worried about anything because that will increase that clenching and that grinding. Certainly for adolescents, avoiding alcohol can also help as well. Sometimes there's an underlying problem with the jaw, you know, and the teeth alignment and malocclusion, and that's uh, needs a trip to the dentist to look at that and and help with that. So the first thing is, if it's just happening irregularly, not to worry about it too much. If there's underlying stress that your child's worried about schoolwork or something else, 
trying to address that and looking at the techniques we've talked about with, you know, mindfulness and relaxation to try and manage that. I think yoga can be really, really helpful <laughs> in this situation. Um, but if it's continuing, um, you may need to see a psychologist if it's stress-related or if there's an alignment of, you know, issues with the teeth, it's seeing your dentist because they can often fix up um, a device for your child to wear overnight in their mouth to stop that grinding and um, that clenching which goes with it. Or as you were saying, Matt, learning to sleep with your tongue between your teeth, which I think is amazing <laughs> to be able to achieve that. But that would be a simple... <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll know because you'll wake up um, pain-free. You won't yeah. have any jaw pain in the morning. You won't have any headaches. Um, your teeth won't be so sensitive to, you know, hot and cold food. So you'll probably know yourself if you fixed it. And if you need any more help on strategies on getting your babies to sleep, there is a wealth of knowledge over at raisingchildren.net.au. Sleep was presented by Harriet Hiscock and Emma Shabaris and produced by me, Matt Dwyer. Audio production done by Darcy Thompson and our executive producer is Jen Goggin. 